What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Episode 23, we are doing car slash driving movies today. And film industry has produced a ton of amazing car racing movies, chase movies, heist movies. And we picked four of our favorites, mm. uh, which are going to be The Fast and the Furious, the original, Drive, Baby Driver, and Ford vs. Ferrari. And all four of these movies are actually very different from one another. They're, they're even in different genres, so it'll be a good talk. And before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast with your friends, either the YouTube full video episode version or our YouTube channel. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, share with your movie friends. We know you got those weird movie people, the film people you talk to. Let them know that there's a show for them out there. We're here, guys. Uh, leave us those five-star reviews. That helps us really get seen by new podcast viewers on the apps, uh, especially the written reviews. And we have a Patreon now. If you want to help support us monthly, that'd be super great. We already have four patrons. So thank you so much for the, all those patrons. Thanks so much for all the people who are sharing our show, subscribing, following us, listening every week. We're super excited that you guys are really digging the show. And let's get started. And as always, spoilers are abound. Let's do it, man. The first film we're going to go over is The Fast and the Furious, the original, the OG. Number one. Directed by Rob Cohen in 2001. This is a wildly successful film with a budget of $38 million and a box office of $207 million. Again, pre-MCU, that's a very good box office. Yeah, in 2000, that's a lot of money. That Inflation-wise, that's like three fifty right now. Yeah, so that's a lot of cheddar. I mean, we're used to seeing numbers like a billion dollars for every comic book movie, but like... Movies did not used to make that much. Yeah, so this franchise has always been appealing, which is why they started attacking on the sequels immediately. But this film introduced the street racing culture to the entire country because there were there were pockets of the culture in various major cities around America, but we had never heard of it. When this film came out, it became the cool thing to, if you were old enough, to, to get a car, to soup it up, to get rims, to de get decals, to get turbo, some kind of way to improve the engine and make it faster. So get tinted windows. So all of that, I feel, began when this film came out. Yeah, we even we knew people growing up. We had a brother that was like obsessed with his car. And it's cool to see a movie that like introduces you to like this new sort of secretive culture that's huge in America mm -hmm. and see... Because you don't see that in your normal day-to-day -day lives since they operate mostly late at night. Mm. And, and it's just something interesting to see new lifestyles that you've never partaked in. And it's a very macho profession, like the engineer, the mechanic. It's, yeah, yeah. it's very appealing to watch. Very masculine in characters, and yeah. And like fantasize that like you can have that life. And this also introduced us to the franchise that would become The Fast and the Furious, which would become, as we know, as big as movies like Star Wars, where they're making a billion dollars for every every movie that comes out. And it's absurd just the, the heights that these, this franchise reached. Which is why we chose it to go over first. And the original is about an undercover cop named Brian O'Connor, played by Paul Walker, who infiltrates the local Los Angeles street racing crews to discover the crew responsible for big rig truck hijackings and dirty money. However, Brian must decide where his loyalties lie when he starts to become enamored with the lifestyle of Dominic Toretto's crew. And whatever your feelings are about the Fast and Furious franchise in terms of how they went from boosting cars and drag racing to fighting superhuman villains and driving cars across skyscrapers, you can't deny, like you said, the power and success of this franchise because the story, the characters, something has clearly resonated with the audience of America and internationally, and fans around the world are obsessed with these stories and still turn out every year, every two years for the movies. Yeah, I, I think the strength of the franchise is the characters and 
it's always one of the main overarching themes of each film is the, the, the idea of family and how important it is to keep your friends close and to always stick by each other's side. And so I think themes like that resonate with a lot of communities across America because that's how they feel as well. And also these are characters that they people people feel like they know these people. They're they're people that are in their lives and this this film in particular showed a different side to Los Angeles, showed East LA. I used to live in a couple of neighborhoods where this film was was made in. Um, it's a different part of LA that you haven't really seen in other films before. It's like the lower classish suburbs and I mean the shop where Toretto's shop is and where Paul Walker's character Brian buys the tuna fish sandwiches on white with no crusts from <laughs> from Mia every day. You used to live across the street from that shop. Yeah, my house was literally across the street from Toretto's shop. This funny thing happened where every weekend in the early mornings, there would be lines of people with souped up cars and they would all take turns posing their car in front of the Toretto shop and taking photos with it. And it was a, it was a, a, a regular occurrence every weekend. There would be rows and rows of these souped up cars in my neighborhood. Yeah, so we're talking about a movie franchise that has created a culture of pilgrimage of people and fans to go pay homage to the original franchise, which is in, it's fascinating. Yeah. You don't really see that with any other movie franchise that I yeah. can think of, besides like Star Wars. But they don't like go to another planet or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know, the na- the main neighborhoods used in this film, um, there are actually a few locations in this one neighborhood. It's called Angelino Heights in Los Angeles. So if you Google Angelino Heights, Fast and Furious, you can actually look at all the houses and streets and neighborhoods that they used for the filming. And the original movie, it's a solid movie. It's not amazing. It didn't win any Academy Awards or anything, but and it has plenty of cliches, action cliches, some plot holes, character cliches. But this movie, and not every movie is supposed to be a masterpiece. This is a classic summer blockbuster, high octane, B plus, A minus action movie against our one of the most successful franchises of all time and it deserves to be talked about despite its cliches despite its flaws yeah and it has a very similar story structure to point break with the undercover getting in with this gang to try and find out who's actually committing the crimes and he befriends them and it's a it's a story that's kind of timeless and you connect with this this person who's a fish out of water joins this new family and even though he's an outsider and is actually supposed to be taking them down he ends up falling in with them and calling them his own brothers and sisters. So it's a, a story that can resonate with everyone. Yeah, this movie, like you said, is literally point break. <laughs> Brian is Johnny Utah, Dom Toretto is Bodie, Mia Toretto is Tyler, and both crews are just wild, hothead, macho dudes. Yeah. Instead of robbing banks, they boost car big rigs. <laughs> Instead of jumping out of planes and surfing, they race cars. It's, it's the, the same, thing. same goddamn movie. <laughs> same movie. But you know what? I don't care. Exactly. That's the thing. <laughs> you got to go into this movie, no expectations. Just have fun. That's the whole point of some movies like this is to have a good time. Watch it with your friends if you've seen it already. or if you, I've seen this movie 15 times. There's no mm. need to see The Fast and the Furious 15 times. Yeah. But it's fun to watch. It's fun to like roast the characters on screen, roast the bad acting. Mm. But the thing that they got right in The Fast and the Furious, again, with all its flaws, is the car chases and the racing. It's so well done the action's amazing and you really hadn't seen anything done that well since like those early racing movies in the 70s those old muscle car movies in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s like bullet and this film really connected with the youth of that that generation at that time because every generation of of young people is very is vastly different from the generation before and i think similarly to how maybe like billy eilish has connected with the youth of today a movie like fast and furious really connected with the majority of the youth back then and it's obviously impossible to talk about the Fast and Furious franchise and this movie without bringing up the tragic death of Paul Walker. Mm-hmm. 
from all the stories I've read of Paul Walker, he sounds like an amazing and incredibly genuine guy, um, incredible person, doing things like we've all heard the stories of him paying for the engagement ring that he saw the soldier trying to buy, his charitable work, and the, the stories you hear of the way he treated his fans. He just was a remarkable human being. It's a tragic loss to the acting community, and, it, and it's just it's horrible, but they did a good job paying homage to him with the last one. Yeah, that scene when they're driving together and, and they pretty much say goodbye to each other. It's a really touching moment, and yeah, I, I agree. Paul Walker, with celebrities, you never really know what they're like in person, but with him, he seemed like a genuinely good person who made the world a better place for being in it. And so, yeah, it was a tragedy that his death was a tragedy, and there's a hole in the in the future cinema where he would have filled it in. Absolutely. Yeah. In all car movies, there are cars in the film that are just as important as the characters. Cars galore. And in this movie, there are three cars specific that are integral to the story. First is the 1995 Mitsubishi Eclipse that Brian uses to street race and get his, his foot in the door with Toretto and the cruise. Dom's 1993 Mazda RX-7, which he drives to beat Brian in the initial drag race. Dom's 1994 Toyota Supra MK4, and Brian drives throughout the film. Mm. And also the 1970 Dodge Charger RT, which is a curse to Dom Toretto's family. That's my favorite car. And he keeps it secretly hidden inside his garage. Mm -hmm. And uh, the latter two are used in the final drag race scene of the film, the iconic one over the over their train tracks. Yeah, and I think the strength of this film is the... The pairing in the chemistry between Paul Walker and Vin Diesel. So Dom and Brian have this great relationship where they they become brothers throughout the film, and their bond is is really challenged by the end of the film when we when Brian is is reveals who he really is. Yeah. And the main plot of this film is basically there's a crew of car jackers and car racers who are hijacking moving big rigs on highways. Paul Walker's character Brian is tasked with infiltrating the gangs to figure out which crew is doing it. And there are two main gangs who are suspected of committing the crimes. It's it's Johnny Tran's gang and also Dominic Toretto's gang. Hmm. And Brian O'Connor infiltrates the gang, like we said, with drag racing using that uh, original Mitsubishi Eclipse, which he loses to Dom in the race. And in order to uh, gain his respect from Dom, he rescues Dom after the police raid the drag racing uh, race. Mm. and he picks Don up on the street and saves him, and that's where he gets his respect and his foot in the door with the, with the crew. Yeah, and then then Brian pretty much becomes like a, a part of the crew working working his way up and building trust with them. And then what's what I, re, what I think is really funny about this film is if you watch it nowadays is the technology is so old. Like everyone's using flip phones, and um, the electronics that are in question that have been stolen. They're all like 12-inch TVs, VHSs, VHSs <laughs> and DVD players. So it's a lot of fun. It's like a time machine watching this film because of the old tech in it. And again, yeah, there are flaws. Like that opening drag racing scene, it's uh, supposedly a quarter mile. The The scene, it should take 10 seconds to drive that distance with these cars. However, it takes almost two minutes to film in, of screen time for this scene. Wait a second. That's supposed to be a quarter mile? Quarter mile drag race. <laughs> that's like a five-minute scene. It's a, literally a two-minute scene. <laughs> and it shows the vehicles driving in excess of 150 miles per hour because they started using like the boost in nitrous oxide, which was like the coolest thing of all time. Yeah. And then that scene, I think what really pulled people in was when they when they get going in that, there, there's that shot where... The camera goes into the engine, 
through through the the piping and watches it shows the the actual chemical reaction of the explosion going on inside the engine which powers the vehicle and then out of the exhaust and it was a great special effect shot that like you'd never seen before well it was very reminiscent of fight club when mm-hmm. when fincher takes the camera and goes through the barrel and everything in the house and also with the goes explosion the trash can. yeah the, the trash can sorry it's the boston <laughs> slang barrel not no one's trash, gonna know what you mean trash can i'm sorry and also when the oven explodes from the uh, the pilotite in yeah. Fight Club. So a similar kind of vibe. And also that was 1999, so I'm sure they saw that and were wanted to replicate it. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic shot. And a lot of the all, – all, most of the racing shots in this film, they tried to get the actors in as much as they could, and so they put the, the cars without wheels or frames on top of on top of trucks and put the actors in so they were able to drive in the trucks with the actors in the cars and then film that way. Yeah. The main crew of this film is made up of Dom, Vince, Leon, Jesse – Letty and Dom's sister Mia. And Mia and Brian have interactions before the initial drag racing. Brian is constantly going to Dom Torello's shop to get tuna on white with no crust. And that's how they met. And that's how a serial killer sandwich. Yeah, seriously. Oh my God. What a weirdo. And what, he, no girl would talk to a guy. Well, actually, he's very handsome, but. He's very handsome. <laughs> that hair. But I mean, Brian literally looks like if tuna on white with no crust was a person, that's Brian in Fast and Furious. <laughs> And so Dom, Dom Toretto is the leader of the crew. He's the father figure of the family, and he's in charge of all operations, and he's also the best driver of the crew and the clear alpha male of this, like, secret drag racing culture. Yeah, he's a man's man of the movie. And then Brian, obviously played by Paul Walker, is the undercover LAPD officer who's tasked with infiltrating the street, street racing scene to discover the crew responsible for the hijackings. And, um, and then we have this, the rest of the crew. There's this guy, Vince. And this guy has domestic assault charges written all over him. <laughs> what a hothead. The dude needs some serious anger management classes. He's, he also could use a laundry machine in a shower. <laughs> Visibly looks like he smells like shit on camera. <laughs> also, <laughs> sexual harassment written all over him. He's, he's big up. He's all over Mia. And she's clearly just get away from me. Yeah, he's very loyal to, to Dom. but uh, Which course. is ironic because he's always trying to hit on Mia. Yeah, and then he's constantly <laughs> jealous of Brian. And he's the last member of the crew to accept Brian into the, into the crew. And uh, he never made wearing two tank tops look worse at the same time. It's like it's like Lizzie McGuire was his stylist. <laughs> he also plays electric guitar at parties and drinks beer without touching his lips to the bottles. Who the Who hell could, is this guy? Did they just give this guy like, hey, just do whatever you want? I don't know. <laughs> this guy in real life is going to find me and murder me. <laughs> and then we have Leon, who's the most forgettable and unimportant character of the crew. Uh, he never even got the callback for the sequels, really. I can't remember what he looks like. <laughs> and then Jesse, who has some integral parts and plot lines in the film. Yeah. He's the character who's like the nerdy guy, the, the high school dropout nerdy kid. And he's, he's like, like a, a little brother. He's like dog. the hacker, like yeah. the early 90s, the late 90s, 2000 movies of all the hackers. He's yeah. a hacker. He's like he's like Mouse in the Matrix. But he also, he ends up racing Johnny Tran and losing his car and, and driving off, which leads later to, spoiler, the drive-by shooting later on in the film, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of the final plot points of the movie. Yeah, so the... the the conflict between the two gangs, not gangs, the conflict between the two the two groups is a driving force in the film. And, and, and Johnny Tran's gang ends up being the prime suspect for Brian, and he actually goes to try and investigate and see if, if he can find any dirt on them regarding the, the stolen electronics. It's kind of like Point Break, where Johnny Utah doesn't want to be want Bodie's crew to be the one that's doing the robberies. Yeah. Same thing with Brian in, in Fast and Furious. He doesn't want Dom's crew to be the one that's doing it. He wants to be wrong. So he wants to catch Johnny Tran's gang at doing it, and then he's, he's eventually wrong when he has the LAPD do the, the, the raid. SWAT raid on his family and his friends. And then, which leads to, obviously, Johnny Tran calling Dom out for being a rat, thinking that he's the one who called the cops on him. The reason why Brian carried out the raid was because he found 
dozens and dozens of boxes of electronics in Giant Tran's garage. But we later find out that he legally purchased them. Per he legally purchased them. So he's not the culprit and he's not the suspect. But at the time, Johnny Tran is doing some illegal activities. You know, yeah. he has that guy by gunpoint. He's like threatening the guy's life and pours the oil down his throat, I think. Yeah. So he seems like a prime suspect, yeah. but he eventually ends up being wrong and he finds out that it is Dom's crew. He's actually a pretty good guy. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny Tran, he's, he's, that guy is jacked in this movie. <laughs> you can't not say someone's jacked. <laughs> he's jacked. It takes a lot of work. <laughs> I respect it. What can I say? <laughs> And so now Brian is tasked with now he has to prove that it's Dom's crew and now he wants in on Dom's operations. Mm -hmm. And we have that classic chase, I mean, uh, racing where they, they race a Ferrari and the Mazda uh -huh. and they beat it, which is pretty badass. Yeah. But um, the cool, the cars in this movie are pretty cool. Yeah. They're, Especially they're for great. the time, they were, they were like the big ticket. And like even Jesse's uh, Jetta is pretty cool too. And I don't think cars are like that are quite as popular or cool nowadays. I think they're a little different. But back then, like having a, like a Japanese car with crazy paint and decals all over it with modification the big, big spoiler huge rims it's low to the ground it's got like under undercarriage lights like that was like if you had a car like that that was really cool it's similar now people just get like a subaru wrx instead because it's all kind of like that and you can modify it pretty easily i love subaru man <laughs> but yeah it was a big deal modifying cars in the 90s and early 2000s it was a mm -hmm. big deal culturally in, in america yeah for just teenagers and young adults yeah but then it, it leads to brian discovers that that dom's crew is the crew and he seeks Mia's help to help to, to learn where they are because he knows that they're about to carry out a mission. Yeah, and Dom invites him basically into the crew, into the new operations. And then we have that final big climax where, um, the, where well, not the final climax, where they're trying to get another big rig and trying to hijack it, but they're doing it in broad daylight yeah. because they're kind of desperate. And also now all these big rig drivers are aware of what's going on, all these hijackings. So now this big rig driver has a, is prepared and he has a, he has a gun. Mm. And so we have these, these crazy unique action sequences of they're driving these little like Hondas and they're jumping from Hondas and cars mm. onto these 18 wheelers. And like you've never really seen that before so, so frequently on screen before. Great action set piece, great stunt work. Um, and it was all tangible. It's all real. I mean, this was before CGI was very believable and realistic. So they couldn't, re they couldn't revert to CGI for things like this so kudos to the stunt men and women who carried this out because it's an insane stunt, stunt sequence yeah the set photos of this scene is insane like literally just dudes jumping from cars onto 18 wheels it's yeah. absolutely nuts no mm -hmm. wires and nothing yeah those guys have cojones oh man big ones and then this leads to um leon getting hurt seriously wounded um brian they fail at the robbery they, they fail at the robbery brian showed up as well Leon got seriously wounded, and they take him um, into the into the desert nearby, off the road. And Leon's clearly gonna bleed out if he doesn't get medical attention. There's really no way to get him to a hospital. They're in the middle of the desert, and so Brian does what he has to do, and he calls it into the police, saying, and he identifies himself as a police officer in front of Dom. And then that look that Dom has on his face, like, "Oh, are you kidding me?" Yeah. And then so Brian sacrificed. His, and he, so Brian decided to blow his cover in order to save Leon's life, knowing that the entire the entire mission was going to blow up. Because he needed to get the medical helicopter evac in yeah. order to save Leon's life. Yeah. So it's a noble thing to do, but still he's giving up his undercover position. Mm. And which he's risking because he's developed this really strong bond with Dom. Dom and Brian s seem to click. They get each other really well. They're, they're very similar characters. They're both, they're both brave guys. 
They're both living on the edge. They're both wild men in their own right. Same thing with Johnny Utah and Bodie in Point Break. Mm. And that's why they get together so well. And they mesh better than even the rest of the crew. Even Brian and Dom get together, get along better than Dom and his best friends. Yeah. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to see the, the relationship come to an end. Yeah, it literally breaks Dom's heart. And then the helicopter shows up and Brian stays with Leon to get him help. And then Dom, Mia, and the rest of the crew take off. And then this leads to Brian going to Dom's house to arrest him because his cover's blown. He knows that Dom's the culprit of the crimes, and now he has to take him in. But now who comes? Johnny Tram with a drive-by shooting. Because Johnny Tram beat Jesse at that drag race in the desert, but Jesse drove off, so he owes him a car. So this is Johnny Tram's way of getting back for Jesse and for the the raid that he thinks Dom sent after him. Yeah, so so Johnny Tram has a lot of motivation to kill them. And this is where Dom and Brian basically go after Johnny Tram's gang, mess them up, and this leads to that epic, epic quarter-mile drag race between Dom and the Charger, which he never wanted to ever drive again, yeah. and Brian in the Mitsubishi, I mean, in the Mazda MX-7. It's probably the best part of any of the Fast and Furious movies is when Dom and Brian are just in each of their cars, and their their, their engines are, are purring, and then they're just staring at each other, and then they have that small conversation, and Dom explains that up to the train tracks is exactly a quarter mile. And it's a great build up to this to this drag race. Yeah, and they race and um after they cross the train tracks with the train passing them at the same time, Dom gets T boned by like a truck. Eighteen wheeler. By an eighteen wheeler. Yeah. And it gets messed up bad. And then obviously the cops are coming because they're after them and they're after Dom. But Brian decides to give him the keys to the Mazda and let him get away. Yeah. Because it's, it's a challenging, challenging decision for Brian because he's developed, again, the strong bond with Dom. So in this film, Brian struggles with his identity. He's a cop, but he doesn't want to... He's, he's become a part of this family, and, he, and if he arrests them, then he's literally destroying his family. And so he has this internal struggle throughout the film. And then this is, fi- this is the big choice, and it comes down to... Who are you? Are you are you a cop and you just believe in, ju- in justice, or are you actually like a street racer and you're part of this gang, you're part of this crew? And he chooses the crew, and he lets Dom go. So he makes the choice to join this family. Yes, he's still a cop when this movie's over and in the second one, but still, he he made a decision and he chose Dom and the crew. And yeah, again, if you go into this movie with no expectations, you're gonna have a fun time. Mock the bad acting, the cheeseball lines. Watch some crazy action sequences. We get amazing one-liners, classic one-liners like, I live my life a quarter mile at a time. <laughs> or, it doesn't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. winning. Classic. <laughs> they're great taglines. I guarantee you Hey, dude, I almost had you. Dude, I, you didn't have me. I bet you a thousand people have that bumper sticker on their car right now. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, it's a good movie. You're going to have a fun time. That's where you go into this movie with expectations as. 100%. And again, it, it spawned the franchise of... Nine movies. It's insane. It's and it has no intention of slowing down. And they're making the half a billion dollars every time. Easy. They're making a billion. They're making a billion dollars every time. It's absurd. Yeah. So obviously we want to talk about Fast and Furious. Yeah. And we'll do um the later films eventually down the line. But this is our favorite one. Hopefully this holds you over for now, guys. All you fans <laughs> of Fast and Furious who've been asking for it. Want to know a crazy fact about this movie? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Mario Lopez was originally sought after for the role of Dominic Toretto. That would have been so bad. That's who the director and producers wanted. Mario Lopez as wow. Dom. Can you imagine? 
Hey, he could not play a tough guy. He's not a good actor. I mean, he's good on sitcoms, but aside from that, he can't do dramatic acting. The producers originally wanted him in the other two main leads from Saved by the Bell to play Brian in another one of the crews. Wow. So it would have been like a Saved by the Bell reunion. It would have been terrible. It would have been awful. Yeah. I mean, Vin Diesel, he's not the best actor in the world, but the guy is very driven and hardworking. He's very good at what he does. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, Vin Diesel, he was he, he got like... Uh, Known by making a, a short film or a, a feature in, film, a independent yeah. feature film yeah. that he wrote, directed, and starred in, and um, it got accepted into Sundance film, film Festival, I think, in 1997. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but Spielberg saw it. He thought his career was over because it, it led to nothing. Mm. But Spielberg saw it and liked it, and Spielberg cast him in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, that's, that's how. It's, it's, yeah, that's how his career basically kind of started. That's so Vin Diesel, he's a, he's a very you think he's just a macho guy, but he's very smart. He's intelligent. He's a he's a good decent actor, good director and writer too. Mm. Because obviously Spielberg saw the potential. Spielberg knows what he's, what he's doing. All right, you ready to move on? Let's move on, man. I am ready to move on to one of my all-time favorite movies. What's Dr that, man? Drive, directed in 2011 by Nicholas Winding Refn. Drive follows a mysterious Hollywood stuntman and mechanic who moonlights as a getaway driver and finds himself in trouble when he helps out his neighbor. This film solidified Ryan Gosling's status as... One of the best actors of his generation and also his magnetism as a star across the world and also brought Nicholas Winning Refn to the attention of American audiences. Refn is a great director. He's made some very good movies like Bronson with Tom Hardy, Valhalla Rises with Mads Mikkelsen. But a lot of people haven't seen these movies um, and only God forgives he's made more recently. I love it. He's a fantastic director, but he's in a tour, which a lot of people, you know... Today, they want to go see just mega blockbuster movies. They want to see superheroes and stuff like that. And so a director like Nicholas Winning Refn takes a script of Drive, which is, you know, on paper, is just about this this getaway driver. It's a dark take on a getaway driver. The book, too. But he takes this script and takes it in an entirely different direction than pretty much any other director would. Yeah, but this film was actually originally supposed to be a high-budget action film with Hugh Jackman as driver. And then Nicholas Winning Refn signed on and completely changed the style and tone of the film. Yeah, and I, I really connect with Refn's style, specifically in this movie. This is one of those movies that people have that in your life that you watch and you personally connect with it emotionally, aesthetically. And I adore the story. I love the characters. And the visuals of this film are stunning. Yeah, and in terms of visuals, I think that's one of Nicholas Winning Refn's trademarks is he's a, he's a stylistic genius, and especially in his latter films... He's really amped up the color palettes and the contrast of his film. And actually, the reason for this is because he's actually colorblind. And so, in order for him to properly see what the film, the coloring and the contrast looks like, he needs to amp up extremely saturated hues of like neon greens and reds and blues. He needs the contrast to be jacked up because if it's not, if it's filmed in a normal color palette, it's very, it's very muted and, and desaturated for him visually. So yeah. that's why a lot of his newest movies, the last maybe three or four, are heavily saturated. Yeah, this movie's like a 80s synth-pop neon glow music video the whole time. It's yeah. amazing, but it, it works so well. And the main car in Drive is a beautiful 1973 Chevy. It's not the car driver uses on his getaway heists, but it's his personal vehicle that he uses day-to-day. -day. It's the most used vehicle in the film that he drives. And Gosling chose the car and basically took it apart and rebuilt it himself. Mm -hmm. So he got to pick the car, which is pretty cool. And I really like the car in this movie a lot. Yeah, and actually to prep this film, 
Gosling and Refn drove around Los Angeles every night for a couple of months just listening to pop music, driving around downtown LA. Yeah, because Refn doesn't know Los Angeles very well, despite the fact that he shot it so well in the movie. Mm. But Gosling's lived here for most of his life, yeah, so he, he, knows it, he knows it really well. So he's basically just driving Refn around the whole time. Yeah, and so this is an L.A. movie, but it, it feels very unique and fresh and a new take on L.A. And Driver is played by, obviously, Brooding Perfection by Ryan Gosling. <laughs> and Driver, again, is a Hollywood stunt driver who moonlights as a getaway driver for criminals. And this character is a complete mystery to the audience, pretty much the entire film from beginning to end. Mm. Um, you don't know his name ever, where he's from. All you know is he's one hell of a driver and he has a dark, secretive past. He's definitely got a mild city accent, like he could be from like New York, Chicago, even fucking Boston kid. Mm. But it could be anywhere. He's very quiet, seems shy, polite in general. Um, ironically, he doesn't have much drive in his life <laughs> until he meets Irene. He's also going to be racing cars professionally, but he seems still somewhat unenthused about it. Nicholas Winning Refn describes Driver as a guy who drives around L.A. at night listening to pop music because that's the only way he can feel anything. And it's, it's a great performance by Gosling. It's a very subtle performance. A lot of people say that it's a little wooden, but... I think he actually does so much by doing so little, and he's able to translate emotions and thoughts and feelings through his subtle expressions, and he's just a powerhouse in this movie. Driver is great at what he does. He's diligent, meticulous. Yes, he's a, a criminal, but also he has a moral code. He has rules that he lives by. He doesn't carry out the robbery himself. He doesn't carry a gun, and he tries to avoid violence as often as he can. And he opts out when he at, when he's hired for a job. He tells the crew, "I'll give you five minutes and no no more." So he gives them a five minute window. If they take longer than that, he's leaving. So he's smart in the fact that he knows that if a robbery goes longer than five minutes, there's a good chance they're going to get caught. Yeah, and like you said, although Driver is a criminal, he also seems to despise other criminals. Yeah, which is evident in the speeches he gives. To them multiple times. It's like he's lecturing them or like the opening phone call and yeah. when he's talking to Cook later on. It's kind of patronizing. And the way he disposes of them eventually with no mercy is ruthless. <laughs> and my God, this movie goes from almost no violence to brutal violence real quick, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. But to stay on Driver, there's a major beef that people have with this movie is, is the lack of dialogue that Gosling has and Driver has. And I know both he and Refn were in agreement to cut a lot of Gosling's lines in the film and Gosling was just coming off Eyes of March which is, a, which is a great political thriller which was heavy in dialogue and I know he's like I, I talked the whole last movie I just want to like cut my dialogue and so he wanted this character to be different both of them did and it's also important for people to understand that you don't need dialogue to tell a story mm -mm. yes those Qu Quentin Tarantino movies are amazing he writes dialogue so well but like you don't need dialogue to tell your story you can do it with actions you can do it with emotions you can do all these things non-verbally and like many of Driver and Irene's scenes, they don't really say much. Basically, Irene's kind of just like looking longingly at him and he's looking longingly <laughs> at her. But you know really quickly and easily that they care about each other and that they want to be with each other. You don't need to talk about it. Yeah, it, it's really easy to see based upon just the moments and interactions they have with each other that when Driver meets Irene and begins spending time with her, we learn that he has found someone that he thinks he can connect with and he there he seems to have an attraction to having a have family life to having like a, a normal life and it seems like 
he wants to be a good person. He wants to lead a good life. And Irene might be his way and his chance and opportunity to do that. Yeah, and so Irene is driver's neighbor and love interest. And Irene seems like a very sweet woman trying to get by and support her son is basically a single mother at the moment because her husband's been in prison. And I think the best decision that Refn made was having only one scene between the two of them where they actually kiss. Aside from that... The only other intimate contact they really make is when Driver's driving Irene to work, and while he's shifting gears, he holds her, she holds his hand while he's doing it. That's that's mm-hmm. the only times they really touch each other, which I think is really smart because, again, Refing is an auteur, and auteurs are very artistic directors where their, their vision supersedes the script. Yeah. Their vision supersedes everything. They're telling you the ideas and, and emotions visually. And mm-hmm. then, the but the main problem that, the big dilemma that Driver has is that he knows, we don't know yet, we, we slowly discover, but he knows that there's a monster inside of him. He knows that he's capable of doing horrible things. He probably has a history of doing horrible things. There's, there's this beast inside, and he, and he doesn't want Irene to find out about it. But it inevitably comes out, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Refn does an amazing job opening this film. Like The first 12 minutes of this movie are amazing because he's making the audience understand what kind of movie they're getting themselves into. And it opens with just credits and then the cell phone call of Driver. And this is where he's in like a hotel room or in his bedroom in his apartment. He's just explaining his rules to this heist crew. He's explaining the rules for the job. Refn shows you in this shot that there's a basketball game on the TV. And there's also a map on the table in which Driver has obviously driven several specific routes that he's probably going to take for this for this mission. Again, very smart guy. He's very well planned. And so we're, we then move on. He's driving around L.A., which we're going to see a lot. Then he goes and picks up his heist car from Shannon, who's played by Brian Cranston, is basically his employer and also kind of his driving manager. Mm-hmm. And Brian Cranston's phenomenal in this role. He's so good in it. Yeah. And then from here, Driver takes his, his heist car, which will be used to blend in because it's a very typical car, and then he goes specifically to the scene of the robbery that's being taken place. And again, he sets his watch for that five-minute timer for when it goes off. Mm. And then from this moment on, the way Refn films this getaway scene is unlike any other filmmaker has done before. Because after a few moments, the robbers get out of the place and they jump into his car. And then driver takes off. And then uh, a pursuit w- with with them evading several police car, several several police cruisers and a helicopter ensues, and it's a several minute sequence. But Refn keeps the camera inside the car the entire time. You, there's no shots outside on the streets. There's no shots of the other of the police cars trying to find them. There's no shots of the helicopter. It's always in the car with driver, and this brings you into the moment. It makes you feel like you're really there with them in that moment, trying to evade police, and it's the first time. And, and, and it created this amazing sensation of you were kind of afraid of them getting caught because you felt like you were in the situation. Yeah, exactly. You know, the car engine sounds differently inside. The way a helicopter shining on a car looks differently from inside. So only keeping you in that environment with these other characters, you're like you said, you're part of the crew, basically. It was a brilliant way to film the sequence and set up the, this new, unique take on an action drama. And again, this is a 12-minute opening. Yeah. And basically, you're learning what this movie's about. And then it goes into opening credits. Refn shows really great music to go with this film yeah and then next up we have that Klavinsky song Night Call Klavinsky song called Night Call and it's basically the theme of the movie and it's great and it's it's 
uh, attributed with these, that like neon 80 synth fonts mm-hmm. for the credits, mm-hmm. and then that cool helicopter sky shot that of the camera following the car driving around the city streets. Yeah, we kind of like from a uh, Zodiac. Yeah, with Fincher, it was a great, uh, great way to set up the tone of this film, and the music of this film is great. All this vintage, retro, synthy pop. But what's ironic is that even though all the music in this film sounds old, it was all actually made after 2007. Yeah, and the thing with the music, like, I'd never heard of any of these songs before. I doubt many people who saw the movie ever heard of these songs. So, Refn, instead of, like, a typical action movie, they're going to bust in something everyone knows or, or a band everyone's heard of or music you can actually, you already know the lyrics to. Mm-hmm. He put in new music, which no one's ever heard. And these songs have become very popular because of being in this movie. Yeah. And the getaway almost fails, but Driver being as prepared and, ge- and brilliant as he always is, Manages to manages to elude the authorities by parking inside of a crowded arena parking lot just as a game is is finishing up. And throughout the chase, throughout the pursuit, he actually has the the basketball game on the radio, so he knows that it's about to end by the time he pulls into the parking lot. So he's he's brilliant, is very good at his job, and knows how to elude capture. Yeah. So again, this twelve minute opening, we learn a few things. Driver's very smart and good at what he does. Refn's a great director, and we're in for a really good movie. Mm. Obviously, one of the most iconic parts about this film is the iconography of Gosling's look. Most importantly, the scorpion jacket, which was so cool. It ended up being probably the most popular new kind of Halloween costume that year. I feel like every guy wanted to dress up as driver with the scorpion jacket. Oh, I googled and, and, that jacket yeah. for cost. Yeah. It's like it a hundred bucks, expensive. but it's pretty cool. But I saw there's so many photos online of guys wearing scorpion jacket with a hammer and gloves and a, and a toothpick and the jeans, and it was just like a f- iconic look for this movie that really brought audiences in. And but hold on, but but as you as you you're gonna tell us, there's actually very important significance to the scorpion. So the scorpion is related to an symbolism in this old parable called the scorpion and the frog. And it's commonly been used in film and stories, and it goes like this. A scorpion and a frog meet on the bank of a babbling stream. It's too treacherous to cross, so the scorpion nicely asks the frog to carry him across on its back. This makes the frog a little suspicious. It asks, how do I know you won't sting me? The scorpion says, because if I do, I will die. This, that sound reasoning relaxes the frog's nerves, so he allows the scorpion to climb aboard, and they shove off across the flowing river. They get halfway across the stream, and the scorpion stings the frog directly in the back. The frog feels the onset of the scorpion's poison and starts to sink. He manages on one dying breath, why? And the scorpion replies, it's in my nature. So basically, the parable is a metaphor for driver and for the overall story and other characters. Is Driver the scorpion or the frog? And this is a heavily debated topic, which you can easily just find on Reddit real quickly. I mean, I think that since he's wearing a scorpion jacket, he's a scorpion. Yeah, well, yes and no. So obviously the scorpion on his jacket is a blatant clue. It could mean, obviously, he's the scorpion. But also, could it mean that the scorpion's on his back and he's actually the frog? Or maybe he's both. Ah. So is he trying to be the frog by leaving his criminal past and evil nature behind him? But the scorpion is really his true identity and is always lingering, waiting to be unleashed, which we eventually see. We can also look at Driver as the frog in the criminal underground. So basically like Shannon, Bernie, and Cook, and Nino, they're the scorpion. I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. But also, I think that it means that Driver is the scorpion, and I'll tell you why. 
there's a scene a little bit more than halfway in the film where Driver has established a relationship with, with Irene and, and Benicio, her son. And there's a moment where Driver and Benicio are sitting on the couch watching a, a cartoon. We don't see the cartoon, but we know it has to do with, with cartoon sharks. Because Driver asks him, is that a bad shark? And then Benicio says, yeah, it's a bad shark. And then Driver goes, how can you tell? And, and Benicio goes, well, just look at him. He's a shark. And what he's saying is that a shark's a shark. They're predators. They kill they hunt. And that's why Driver is the scorpion because, yes, he wants to be a good person and he wants to be with Irene, but he also knows that he's, he's a shark and it's in his nature to kill. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be set loose eventually, inevitably, somehow. And so when that finally does come out, he knows that Irene will never accept him. Yeah, I agree. I think Driver is a scorpion, but I also think the facade that he puts on is the frog because he wants to put that past behind him. But he, like you said, eventually it's going to come out. And yeah, also, so you're, you were right what you said earlier. He's trying to be the frog, yeah, he's but he's actually be. a scorpion. Yeah, so he's, he's literally the scorpion, which we find out eventually. And something interesting about the jack with the scorpion is there are a lot of times throughout the film where Driver does not have the scorpion jacket on. He generally wears the jacket when he's doing criminal activity. But eventually, he, a lot of the scenes, he takes it off. You know, when he's with Irene, when he's with Benicio, when he's trying to be a good person. Even, like, when he goes shopping. he's not wearing. The, why isn't he wearing the scorpion jacket when he's going shopping? Because he's not doing any criminal activity. I also think that the whole scorpion outfit, and especially with that, with that bald mask that he steals from set, it's kind of like a superhero outfit for him. Where when he puts the suit on, he's a different person. He's the killer. He's the, he's, he's the, the driver. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's really his inner scorpion self. Yeah. And Gosling actually always wanted to make a, a superhero film. And he felt that with this film, he finally had the opportunity because he thinks that driver is a kind of a superhero. And fun fact, he was actually offered the role of Batman for Batman versus Superman. And then he turned it down because he didn't, he doesn't do sequels. He was offered Batman versus Superman. He was offered Bruce Batman. Wayne? Yeah. He turned it down. I don't think I could see Gosling as, as Bruce Wayne or Batman. Gosling I, can do anything, man. I love Gosling, but like, as Batman? Yeah. I could. don't know if he has he has a great job, but I don't think it's like the right job for Batman. He could have done it. He probably could have. Yeah. Don't doubt Gosling, man. I don't know, man. <laughs> so yeah, I think that it's like a it's like a, a superhero costume he puts on. But this parable metaphor, it's so fun because there's so many differing opinions and there's a lot of great metaphors that you can make about it and it can go in any way and the thing with with this movie and overall the themes of the movie and the ending of the movie is Refn left it ambiguous on purpose mm. because to him and to a lot of directors especially like Nolan and and other great directors the ambiguity really adds to the art form yeah. because like when you go see art or you listen to music it's subjective and you get to decide what you're feeling yeah that makes it fun for the audience and so let's move on with the story is and what happens is Driver and Irene establish this relationship. And Driver, for the first time in his life, there's some brightness in his life. He feels good about this. And he's happy when he's with Irene and Benicio. And it's really improving his self. And may, he thinks maybe there's a chance for me to, to have a normal life, for me to be the frog. Maybe I can just be a good person. But things get turned upside down when Standard comes back. Yeah, and Standard is Irene's newly released from prison husband. And this was the first movie I ever saw Oscar Isaac in. You guys are known from, from Star Wars. He's, he's, he's uh, Poe. Oh. And although he plays somewhat of a villain in this movie, 
I found him to be electric on camera, and I loved his performance, and I was, like, so enamored by this guy the first time I saw him. I feel like on paper, he's not that great of a character or that likable of a person, but because Oscar Isaac is so talented, he made you really empathize with this character. It seems like, on paper, he seems like a, a, a criminal who, who just got released from prison, and he's like, when you... When Irene tells the driver about him, we think, oh, no, it's this, like, asshole thug, and now he's coming back, and he's going to take Irene away from him. But we learn that he seems like he could be a guy who's just made some mistakes. He seems like an over- overall, like, a good a good husband and a good, fa- and a good father, and he's just ha- been down on his luck. But you can also tell that there's tension there because, to me, it seems like Irene doesn't want to be with Standard anymore because she wants to be with Driver. Yeah. Again, minimal dialogue, but you can tell just non-verbally, emotionally that yeah. she's kind of trapped and feels obliged to stay with Standard. But um, And that's most, most noticeable in the scene... When Stanner gets back, they throw a party for him, Irene and all their friends, and her, her apartment's just filled with people, and they're all having fun and celebrating. And then there's this push-in on Irene, and she's standing alone in the kitchen, and there's just that look on her face where this party's happening, and she should be celebrating, but obviously her mind is on Driver, and vice versa. Driver is in the apartment neck down the hall, and he can hear the music from the party, and he's he's working on a tool. He's, like, fixing a carburetor he's, yeah, or something. Yeah, he's fixing something, and, and you can tell... That music is pounding through the walls, and you can see the the look of despair on his face because the light that was in his life is shut out now. And so we quickly the plot takes a new turn where because of Standard's past, he owes people money. Well, Standard owes protection money from in prison. Yeah. And Driver he comes home and sees that that Standard Gabriel's been beat up by thugs. And um and also Benicio was handed a bullet by the thugs. And so Driver inserts himself into the situation and he's going to help Standard out and get him out of the spine. And even this is where and, But he's he's doing it not just for Standard, he's doing it to protect Irene and Benicio. Exactly, because he 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 has a lot of feelings for Benicio and Irene. And it's actually a very admirable and noble thing because in a way he doesn't he has no he has absolutely no responsibility for them. And he's pretty much not going to be relevant in their lives anymore with Standard back. But still, he, he's willing to sacrifice himself in order to help them out. And at the same time that this is going on, Shannon, Driver, and this guy Bernie, who has worked with Shannon in the past, are setting up a race car career with Driver as the main driver. And mm. Shannon is the manager, and Bernie's the financier. Bernie, played by Albert Brooks, is phenomenal in this movie. I feel like Albert Brooks kind of got snubbed by any kind of nominations or, or award support because he's one of the best roles in the movie. Yeah, this is so against type for Albert Brooks, and he actually wanted the role because he had never killed anyone on screen before. And he even shaved his eyebrows when he met Nicholas Winding Refn in his audition. Yeah, he went in character and put yeah. Nicholas Winding Refn against the wall. So if you watch the movie again... Uh, Bernie doesn't have eyebrows. That's why he seems so odd and menacing. Yeah. And he, Bern- seems, he seems emotionless and disconnected yeah. because of it. And so Bernie's the financier. But you can also tell that he's a he's a criminal too. You know, he's he's kind of in cahoots or in a partnership with, with Nino, the uh, Jewish guy. Yeah, it's like a Jewish gang. Well, well, Nino's just a Jewish guy who owns an Italian pizzeria. Uh, thinking he's... Because, like, I think... Uh, he wants to be a, he wants to be an Italian mobster. Yeah, so he's, he's a Jewish New Yorker who wants to be an Italian mobster, yeah. which is ironic. And then... um. But Bernie is very sharp and smart, but he's an evil businessman. You can tell he was a producer of 80s action movies, which he says. And then there's that great, sorry to interrupt, there's that great moment when Driver meets Bernie early in the film, and Shannon's introducing them, and then Bernie holds out his hand to shake Driver's hand, 
and Driver's taking his gloves off, and he says, my hands are a little dirty. And then Bernie says, it's okay, mine are too. And then that's it actually, it's a character trait for Driver because it, it kind of, he is, a, he's, he's not fully dirty, he's a little dirty because, yes, he's a getaway driver, but he's not actually committing the robberies, he's not actually hurting anyone, so he is not completely dirty. Yeah, but Brooks puts on an amazing role. It's nuts because he plays Nemo's father in Finding Nemo, <laughs> and now he's playing this evil businessman killer guy in Drive, and it's, it's just a fun change of direction for him. That scene when he kills the guy in the pizza shop, he, he, he jams the fork in his eyeball. It's nuts. And then he starts jamming the knife into his throat over and over again. Holy shit, man. What a scene. Yeah, so like you, you have like an idea that Bernie's like a bad guy, but then when you actually see how mercilessly he kills people, like when he kills Cook in that scene, it's yeah. absolutely insane. Nuts. So Driver decides to help Standard on this job, and what they don't know is the job is a setup, and it goes horribly wrong. Driver steals a Mustang for the job, and uh, he drives with Standard, and they also have a new character, Blanche, to help on the, on the hit. And um, Standard gets shot by the pawn shop owner, but Blanche has a giant suitcase full of money, which was not supposed to be part of the plan. And um, basically, Blanche and Driver get away from another car that followed them there. And they end up at a hotel, and Blanche shares their location secretly with Cook, who she thinks will protect her. Eventually, Cook sends hitmen to the hotel. They kill Blanche, and then we finally see, we finally see the scorpion. We get to see this violent, ruthless killer that's been hiding inside Driver the whole time. And this kill scene is absolutely insane. It's brutal, it's bloody. And it's disturbing at the same time. And it's, it's shocking compared to the first half of the film. Yeah, this is an amazing scene. And it shows... Refn has always had extreme violence in his films. And with this movie, you're waiting for that to happen when it finally does. And it crescendos in this amazing violent scene. It blows you away. And then, like you said, it's, it's brutal and it's bloody. And you can see how ruthless and inefficient of a killer driver is. And then there's this amazing shot that I love where... Driver's in the bathroom, and he, and he slowly peeks out of the bathroom doorway, and he's just covered in blood. And Gosling has that amazing look on his face. And from this moment on, the movie just fucking is unrelenting. And so next, Driver goes to find Cook after Blanche tells him where, where he is, before Blanche dies. And so Cook owns a strip joint, and so Driver decides to go there, but he's got a hammer. There's that amazing shot where he's walking through the hallway, and Refn just shows the hammer in his hand, and you're like, what's he going to do with that? Because you just saw what he just did earlier. Now he has a hammer. Like, what is happening? And in your mind, you're thinking, like, what has Driver done in his past? This guy kills so efficiently and effectively and is fearless. He's so calm under pressure, which is probably why he's such a good driver, too. But he just busts in the strip joint, goes into the back room, and breaks Cook's hand with the hammer. He, so he takes the bullet that, he gave, that Cook gave Benicio, and he places it against Cook's forehead, and then he holds the hammer up, and there's this amazing moment where it's like, what's gonna, is, if he slams his hammer down, it's going to shoot the bullet into his head. Yeah, so Cook gives up the information and yeah. the, the number yeah. to call, right, to get in contact with Nino. Mm. And then Driver takes that bullet and shoves it down Cook's throat, and it's just like, I've never seen anything like that before in a movie. It's so intense. And then this is where we Driver has finally shown us his true self. He's like you said, he's finally shown us the Scorpion. He gets back to the apartment building and he tells Irene what happened. She's very upset, slaps him in the face. But they they're in danger. She's in danger. Benicio's in danger. So he needs to get her out of there. And then this leads to 
probably the most famous scene in the movie, the elevator scene. Yeah, the elevator scene. This is the first time, like we said earlier, that they kiss. And when they get inside the elevator, the driver notices that there's clearly a hitman in this in this room with them, in the elevator with them. And then he notices the gun at his hip. Yeah, and, and Refn just does this super slow-mo shot. It's beautiful. The light changes. There's this very warm light on Irene and Driver. And Driver just turns around in like 120 frames per second or higher, and he kisses Irene. And then after he kisses her with this fairy tale music going on and this beautiful lighting, and he turns to the hitman and beats the crap out of this guy. He beats him so bad that he's smashing his foot into his face until he caves him in his entire skull. You don't even see what's, what he's doing, but just the sound effects and then Gosling's performance in his face. It's just, it's terrifying and it's brutal. So people want people question why did Driver kiss her right there? Because if you know that there's a hitman right here, you don't want to turn your back to him. Obviously, you're putting yourself into a vulnerable situation. And so the reason why Driver kisses Irene is because this moment right now is the last moment that Irene will see Driver as the man that he wants to be because he knows that in order to kill this, this hitman, he's going to have to let loose his true self, that violent monster that he has inside. And once that is set loose and once Irene sees that side of him, she'll never want to be with him. And so he takes the, the, the last chance he has, the last opportunity he has, where she still has feelings for him to, to have a moment of intimacy with her. And that's clear because as soon as the doors open and she runs outside and looks back into the elevator, Driver's face is covered in blood. Yeah. And he has this look on his face where it's so hard to tell what's going on in his head where he has just immediate regret. And he's looking at her, not blinking, eyes wide. He's never going to see her again. And she's just mortified at what she's seen from Driver, who she had feelings for. And the reason for this is because it's clear and obvious that Driver went way too far in killing this guy. He clearly incapacitated this guy pretty quickly, but yet he just kept stomping and stomping and stomping until he clearly broke through the guy's skull, which is completely unnecessary force. And so this is what horrifies Irene. And when the elevator doors close, it's literally closing between them and it's shutting off their relationship from here on out. They'll never see each other again. This is all connected to Bernie and Nino because Nino and Cook are, are contacted together and obviously Bernie killed Nino. And so they're trying to tie up loose ends. And so this is, leads to Driver taking the stuntman mask, like you said earlier. And this is where he, that crazy scene where he kills Nino mm. and he takes his car and he smashes Nino's SUV onto a beach. Yeah. And he just takes him to the shore and just drowns him in the ocean. Driver has unleashed this part of himself that he's been keeping buried. And you can see, and it makes you wonder what his past is. Because with this kill of Nino, he's like taking his time. He's like kind of savoring the moment. And when he goes and like spies when he, when on he, them like through the window. but No, but after, after he ca crashes him on the beach, like there's a shot where Nino is on the beach and he's injured and he looks up and Driver's just standing there like a villain like at the edge of the beach just watching him. And he's like taking in the moment of killing Nino. And you can tell he cl he clearly is enjoying killing this guy. And he's still wearing the mask. Yeah. Why is he still wearing the mask? It's, What's the matter if he sees your face if you're going to kill him? Exactly, which brings to the point where he's like embraced this side of him that is this like anti-hero this this costume is that that anti-hero's costume yeah in the same way that brooks is trying to take out all the loose ends that are connected to him driver's taking out all the people that could potentially harm irene and benicio and at this point bernie also he has to tie up loose ends which is why he killed cook 
and why he's going to next up kill Shannon. At the same time, Driver has to try to take out everybody who poses a threat to Irene and Benicio. And then this leads to that tragic scene where Bernie finally confronts Shannon in the garage. And there's this moment where they have a small conversation and Shannon just, he knows that he's done. He knows he's about to die. And again, just like with Driver, where we don't know his past, but we immediately learn of his killing abilities and his efficiency at it. Same thing with Bernie, where Bernie immediately kills Shannon with just a simple slice of a knife Mm -hmm. right up his wrist. And he's even like, it's over, it's done, it's done, it's, it's, it's over, don't worry. He's actually yeah, comforting him. He doesn't want him to feel pain or feel scared because he he has a relationship with Shannon, but also he has to do this. It's part of his his code as as a killer. And for the business that he runs, there can't be any loose ends. So he has to he has to kill a friend of his. Yeah, and it makes you wonder how many times has he done this, especially after the scene, he goes back to his home and he cleans off that really unique knife mm-hmm. and he opens up a box that's full of other unique lives, knives and you look at all these knives and you wonder how many lives have these knives taken and i'm sure each knife has so many different stories so many different people from his past that have died from all, from all of those knives and he must choose the knife obviously beforehand if you're going to kill you know you're going to kill someone you he probably opened that box and chose that specific knife to kill Shannon for some reason and then this leads to the final showdown between Bernie and Driver and basically what happens is Bernie gets in contact with Driver and agrees that he's going to let Irene go. But Driver has to give him the money. And ironically, the money was right next to him the whole time in Shannon's garage. Mm. And so they meet at a Chinese restaurant. And the way that Refn films this scene is it's a cross cut between them talking at the table about the money. Driver's kind of just like smiling and nodding. Tells him where the money is. But he, he knows he's going to die. And... At the same time, Refn is cross-cutting the scene in the parking lot of them opening the trunk. And this is where, during the parking lot exchange of the money, Bernie stabs Driver violently in the stomach. And then Driver stabs Bernie. And then it begs the question, Driver probably knew that this was going to happen. Because they're both scorpions. And so Bernie struck first. And Driver took the knife and struck back. And he was more lethal with his attack. And the way that Refn filmed the final ending of the scene is oh, man. he finishes it not showing the killing visually, but he shows the shadows of the characters on the pavement of the parking lot. And we see the shadow of Bernie dying and falling to the ground below the shadow of Driver. And then this leads to the most suspenseful shot in recent memory where it's moments after this and Driver is sitting in his car in the, in the driver's seat and his head is resting back against the seat, and it doesn't look like he's breathing. He's frozen. He's not moving. His eyes aren't moving. And you're like, is he dead? Is he alive? I can't tell if he's dead. And it's this long wait. I think it's like 20 seconds. It's a pushing, too. Yeah, and it's a pushing closer and closer on, on driver's face. And then suddenly he, he, he breathes, and he moves, and he starts the car. And you're like, yes, he's alive. Yeah, so this is an ambiguous ending. Does Driver survive eventually? Does he die eventually? Again, Refn wants you to decide. He wants you to interpret the ending for yourself. The last shot is Driver, and it's a POV of his car driving through this this woodland road, and it's just headlights on the road, and then you can see Driver's hand, and it's very bloody. So he's driving, but you know he's seriously wounded. So is he going to make it, and where is he going to go? He has no money. He left the money there, so... You have to make it up for yourself. Like, what do you think happened to Driver in the end? 
And again, this is a phenomenal movie, and the entire title of the movie is a metaphor for the film. You know, finding your drive, finding your purpose, your path in life. Driver's newfound drive was rescuing Irene from the criminals before trying to be a part of her life. I love it. Drive's the best. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Next up, we got Baby Driver, written and directed in 2017 by the very talented Edgar Wright. Baby Driver is about a young getaway driver played by Ansel Elgort who suffers from tinnitus after a car crash. He uses music to drown out the noise in his ears, always wearing earbuds to help distract himself from the ringing. And tinnitus is the perception of noise or ringing in your ears. What's really cool about this movie is when there's scenes where Baby isn't wearing headphones or there isn't music playing in the scene, you can actually hear the ringing that he would hear. It's very subtle, but you can actually, Edgar Wright, put it in the film. Very cool. This is an incredibly fun movie. It's an excellent addition to Edgar Wright's diverse filmography. The guy's done everything. He's done zombies, murder mystery, (laughs) aliens, comic books, heist movies. And like the rest of Edgar Wright's movies, Baby Driver is hysterical. It's really well written, expertly directing, and the characters are genuine and fun. And Edgar Wright started working on this film in 1995, finished the script in 2011, and didn't get to make it until 2017. Yeah, and he actually moved on to this project after Marvel cut ties with him for Ant-Man, which seemed like it was pretty a, a pretty unfair thing that happened to him. But ultimately, uh, this movie came out of it, so I'm happy that Edgar Wright got to make this passion project of his. Obviously, music is a huge part of Edgar Wright's movies. It always has been. But... He took it to another level with this film because he integrated music into the rhythm, pacing, and dialogue and action of this movie where most of it matches with the beat and rhythm of the music that plays. This is almost a musical at times. This is a musical, but there's no dancing, there's no singing, but the world acts to the music. And he he wrote it to a certain set list of songs. When he sent actors the screenplay when they were cast, he actually sent an iPod with them to listen to the the specific songs he laid out. When you get to this page or this scene, play this song when you read the scene. So they're able to read the read the pages of the screenplay while listening to the songs that he had in mind for the scenes. Yeah, and again, due to Baby's hearing condition, he's constantly listening to music. And Wright does a terrific job putting you in the shoes of Baby because whatever Baby's listening to, you're listening to. If he's just got the left ear button, you got only left channel audio music. If you got the right button, he's, you're only listening to the right channel. And... Edgar Wright's chosen music for this film is incredible and on par with like Tarantino and Scorsese. Mm. Listen to the playlist, guys. I'm telling you, it's fantastic. It's such a good soundtrack. All sorts of genres from all sorts of decades. And a really fun fact about this movie, he has Easter eggs sprinkled throughout all of his movies and especially this one. But my favorite one is there's a scene later in the film when Baby comes back to his apartment and it's been trashed and there are a bunch of vinyl records thrown all over the floor. These vinyl records are actually the albums of the songs that are featured in this movie. Very cool. And Edgar Wright geniusly uses music in this film like we've been saying. And basically, it's the opening of the film is, is a perfect example. It's this giant like three-minute long take of Baby just picking up coffee, but he's just listening to one song. And how many times have you been out, you've been listening to a song with your headphones, you're on a walk, or you're just driving your car... And it seems like the music in your head is like the soundtrack to your life. Like yeah. you're a character in the movie uh-huh. and all oh, this this is going on. And then like maybe you're stepping to the rhythm. Maybe a door opens and closes at the same time as a beat. Mm-hmm. And right choreograph the baby's day-to-day life like this. And it's really fun to watch the music go along with what's happening in the world around him. What I also love about that scene and throughout the film is 
So this film, he originally wanted to shoot it in L.A., but they moved it to Atlanta because of the tax cut incentive, which has happened over the last uh, five or so years. A lot of TV shows and movies have moved to productions to Atlanta to save money. And rather than most productions, they film in Atlanta but try to make it look like it's L.A. or Chicago or, or another city. He embraced the idea of Atlanta, and he showed as mu- he showed as much of Atlanta as he could. And in this scene, you get the you, you can really feel this is a city in Atlanta that we've never seen before. And this scene perfectly illustrates the environment for us. I also love how Baby uses iPods and has like a ton of them. Yeah, all for different moods. And for you Gen Z people out there, <laughs> you kids, iPods used to basically be what an iPhone is today, except with just crappy screens and no functions besides storing and playing music. That's all, all it did. The coolest thing about it was that you could put like 200 songs on an iPhone on, on an iPod, and you were like, "Oh my God, there's so many songs!" Dude, on I this. got like a five gigabyte iPod. What about you? If you had like a thousand songs on your iPod, you were like rich. <laughs> <laughs> my iPod. Was like 50 cent in like Eminem, <laughs> but the whole reason why Baby has iPods and actually uh, an endless stream of sunglasses is, is throughout his entire life he's been boosting cars since he was a kid, and he and Edgar Wright figured that what would Baby get from boosting cars? He would steal their iPods and, and sunglasses that people left inside of them. So that's why he has this collection of all these items. And Baby also likes to remix and make remixes of his life and everything he hears and everything that happens around him. It's basically beyond an impulse at this point in his life. It's a personality trait, which gets him into trouble later on in the film, but he records a lot of things that happen into his day-to-day life. <laughs> Baby Driver is a very refreshing film in the era of like superheroes and big-budget action flicks because this movie reminds you of, of what movies can be like, the emotions they can make you feel, Without a giant budget, without superheroes, without explosions, and all you need is some cool car chases, some interesting characters, and you can completely enthrall an audience with those two things and a great soundtrack. And if you haven't seen this movie, guys, you got to check it out. It might be the most fun movie you watched this year. And the way Edgar Wright filmed these car chase scenes is he used as little CGI as possible. There's only a little CGI at all. For the, but for the most part, it's all stunt driving. It's all actors driving. And he filmed the action in camera, on the streets, no green screens, and it just feels so tangible and visceral. And he makes the driving stunts fun as well. Yeah, the main stunt driver is this guy named Jeffrey Fry, and my God, some of the most skilled driving I've ever seen in a movie. That move he makes in that alleyway? The 180 spin underneath? Yeah, it's insane. I think they did that in six takes. That's crazy. But um, Baby's Ride of Choice is a red 2006 Subaru Impreza WRX Limited, which obviously I brought up earlier. Subies. Subi WRX. Yo, you got a WRX, kid? And so Baby is a getaway driver, and he's under this guy, Doc's Control, played by Kevin Spacey. And Doc seems like a good guy, kind of like a father figure almost to Baby at first. And also Baby meets a young waitress named Deborah, who he falls for in like a very classic way. Um, But Baby's beholden to Doc because he got caught stealing from Doc, so he owes him a debt. Mm. And eventually, Baby earns enough money to pay off his debt to Doc. But Doc threatens him and blackmails him basically to keep coming to work for him for one final last job, which keeps him back in the game. And he threatens the life of his newfound love, Deborah, mm-hmm. And so that's what creates this new dilemma between Baby coming back into the criminal life for one more job with this new unstable crew of all sorts of characters. Yeah, the cast in this movie is great. We have Jamie Foxx as Bats, John Hamm as Buddy, Aitza Gonzalez as Darling. Ooh, what a babe. Aiza. Oh, man. 
And yeah, Kevin Spacey as Doc. And then also John Bernthal is in the opening uh, first act of this film as well. Yeah. And Buddy and Monica have that sort of like Bonnie and Clyde thing going on. Yeah. She seems a little young for him, but also John Hamm's Hamm, a very handsome guy. He's a good looking guy. He's also got the uh, the prisoners, Jake Gyllenhaal undercut yeah. going on in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a cool role for John Hamm because you never really see him as like this like rugged criminal guy from the underworld. Yeah. He's usually in a suit. It's actually the only role that Edgar Wright wrote specifically for an actor and he wrote it for John Hamm. And John Hamm was obviously the first person cast because he was so flattered that he wrote a role for him. There's that great scene where they all they wanted Mike Myers mask from the Halloween movies, but he actually got actual Mike Myers masks, the actor. And there's that great scene. <laughs> and in order to get that, they actually so Edgar Wright wanted the Michael Myers masks from Halloween for the film, but they couldn't afford the rights to them. And so instead, he wrote this new version of the scene where they make it a joke about Mike Myers and Michael Myers. And he called up Mike Myers, the actor, and asked for permission to use his likeness with the masks. And Mike Myers loved the scene so much, thought it was hilarious, he gave him permission. Yeah, of course. Who wouldn't want to? Yeah. I mean, Mike Myers doesn't do much anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> he's to get his face out there as much as possible. <laughs> and the thing with Baby that sits him out from these other criminals is he's genuinely a good person. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a nice guy. He's got a good heart, and you can tell. And obviously, the mistakes of his youthful past, which is why he owes this debt to Doc... But he's a good person, and he's actually very similar to Driver, minus the murderous tendencies, <laughs> in, but instead of with music. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he lost his parents at a young age in a car crash, and that's what led him on this path of stealing cars and then being taken in by Doc. And also, most of the gunshots, if not all, of this film are in time with the beats of the music. So Baby basically is on this final heist in order to get away and be off with his, his new love, Deborah. They plan to get away together, yeah. And again, he's with this motley crew of unstable characters, and he kind of has to figure out a way to get out of the heist while the heist is going on, because the heist starts to take an erratic turn. And then this is that great moment where the heist is happening, and then Baby's parked around the corner of the bank, and then he sees ahead of him, there's a truck parked ahead of him with a bunch of uh, metal beams sticking out of the back of it. And then he sees he kind of sees an opportunity, and then when the crew gets in, and then Bats, Jamie Foxx, gets into the front seat, and they're telling him to drive, but what happened was before they got into the car, they shot that innocent bystander, and then Baby, because he witnessed this murder, he's like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to help these people. They're, they're, they're cruel, ruthless people. And then when the, uh, the rest of the crew gets in the car, he just slams on the gas and speeds right into that the back of the truck, and the pole jams right into Bats's chest, and you're like, "Oh fuck! Yeah, oh a, my really god!" Good yeah, Jamie Foxx's Bats is—it's a really cool character, and he's easily the most impulsive of the crew. And like every heist crew has that impulsive guy that pulls shit. Yeah, and it's pretty cool to see Jamie Foxx play a villain. You can tell he had a lot of fun doing this role. Mm-hmm. And Bats' behavior is also integral to another subplot before this final heist for Baby, where. Bats discovers that baby he discovers baby's recorded tapes and he turns them into doc and it forces everyone to think that baby could be an informant or something like that. Mm. And so we get a background on on why baby makes the remixes and how harmless they actually are. They're actually pretty funny yeah. and very dorky, <laughs> <laughs> very innocent. <laughs> and then it gets out and then after Bats is killed it leads to that great chase where the cops are going after baby, buddy and darling. And actually, the studio didn't want the foot chase because they were going over budget, even though this budget of this movie was already small. But Edgar Wright convinced them to take it. Edgar Wright convinced them to, to allow the foot chase by 
reducing his director's pay- paycheck. So he took less money just to film this one foot chase. Yeah, I think a lot of people, they, they might not understand that, like, why does Edgar Wright, such a great director who makes amazing movies, need to, like, ask for more money? Why can't he get, like, $200 million? It's because production studios, all they care about is making money. And if you, if Edgar Wright makes great movies and they don't make a ton of money in the box office, they're not going to give him too much money. So, yeah, yeah. And so, like, Ed- he, his movies, they're great. They're so good, but like he doesn't have as big of an audience as you'd think. Yeah, they're not pulling in two hundred million domestic, so they can't give him eighty million for a movie. They'll give him thirty million for a movie. Because obviously, like, who wouldn't give Edgar Wright eighty million dollars? And yes, this movie made its money back, and then some. It was very profitable, but also it's like you don't know what's going to happen. And then studios, like, if if they lose a lot of money, it affects their ability to make more movies. So they're always just very they very strict in, with their money, and so it's hard for someone like. Edgar Wright, who we love, to get the budget that he really needs. Yeah. Like, if, if it worked out with Ant-Man, that would have been great to see. Yeah. So, Monica dies in the shootout with the cops, but Buddy gets away, and Buddy's just kind of, like, unstoppable in this movie. He's kind of like Terminator. Buddy ends up becoming the main villain of the movie by the third act. Yeah. Because what happens is he ends up killing Doc when he goes after 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 Baby. Because then, Doc is like so touched with the relationship between Baby and Deborah that he's like kind of going to support them, and he he decides to protect them at the end of the movie. Yeah, there's that great scene where where they go into the diner. Oh and, yeah, and the diner Barry scene. White's playing on the music uh. in the background, and it's just like I love Barry White and that song. And then you see just Buddy at the diner, all bloody and everything, yeah. just waiting for them. It's a really intense scene. It's a great moment, and and John Hamm kills it in this intense scene because Darling's been killed. So he wants nothing but revenge against Baby. And then this leads to the big showdown in the parking lot. And then Baby manages to ram Buddy's car out of the off the parking lot like sixth story. And he crashes down onto the, the, the roof below. Yeah, and Buddy falls directly onto the car. Yeah. Brutal way to die. Yeah. And so eventually Baby and Deborah start to get away, but... They get caught. They get stopped by a roadblock by police officers, and this leads to that you know questionable ending, the ambiguous ending that again great directors like to do, where buddy, where baby eventually surrenders to the cops despite Deborah begging him not to. So he gets twenty five years in prison, five years with parole on uh, good behavior, on good behavior, and the film throughout his, his sentence in jail, he gets like a postcard from from Deborah, and she says she's gonna wait for him and everything. And then there's, there's sequences where it turns to black and white and he's getting released from prison. And then it switches back to like this fairy tale color glow going on. And Deborah's waiting for him upon his release with that brand new car and she's got that dress on. And it's, it seems like, is this a fantasy? Is it a dream? Is it real? I like I think that it's actually just a fantasy because it seems too dreamlike to me. And it seems like Edgar Wright had Baby get arrested for a reason. I think he wanted to show that your actions have consequences. Because how many movies have you seen where the people just drive off into the sunset together? Yeah, and also Baby finally decided that he's not a criminal. And that's why he turned himself in. So it was an important character um, decision. And I, I also agree that because the, the wardrobe is so vintage and the car and the way it's lit, it feels so dreamlike. It seems like it's a fantasy. So I also agree that, I mean, I know it sounds grim and sad, but I think that baby's still in prison. And that's how the movie ends. Yeah. 
And it's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. It's not Edgar Wright's best movie, but it's one of his most fun. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, obviously you have. If you listen to this, check it out and yeah. watch it again. It's, it's, a, it's a great time. Let's move on to the final film of the episode, Ford vs. Ferrari. One Di- of my favorite films last year. Directed by James Mangold last year in 2019. Easily one of the best films of the year. And it got its deserved recognition at the award shows with four Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It won two awards for, I think, sound mixing and editing. And this could end up, I think, over time becoming one of the best racing films ever, if not the best racing film ever made. I think it is the best racing film ever made, especially because James Mangold is such a traditionalist when it comes to filmmaking. And he shot the real race cars really racing in these tracks. He strapped cameras to them. He, He put cameras in other cars and followed the race cars. So everything is so tangible and visceral, and it's really happening. He tried... He tried to get the actors and shots as often as possible. So it feels real and authentic. And I've never been put into a race like that ever before on screen. Yeah, you feel like you're a driver with the sound. Especially, this is a movie you, you had to have seen in theaters to get the full experience. Because some movies, like, like Chris Nolan movies, and this movie specifically, you gotta see it in theaters to get the full effect. Get, get that surround sound, man. So Ford vs. Ferrari is about American car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles who battle corporate interference and the laws of physics to build a revolutionary race car for Ford in order to defeat Ferrari at the 24-hour Le Mans in 1966. Le Mans is a legendary annual 24-hour race that Ferrari used to dominate. Carroll Shelby won the race in 1959, but due to a hard condition, had to quit racing, so moved on to developing cars in his own company called the Shelby Motor Company, hence Ford Shelby Mustang, which we've all heard of. Yeah, And And this is a great story that I never heard of where... The Ford Motor Company was failing. They weren't selling anymore. GM had taken over as the new king of of cars in America. And as we've as Leo as Lee Iacocca says, Fords aren't cool anymore. The kids aren't driving Fords. James Bond doesn't drive a Ford. And so Ford had to desi- devise this way to get back into the public consciousness and to be cool again. And so they devised this plan to enter Le Mans. And Matt Damon plays Carol Shelby. Christian Bale plays Ken Miles, a long-forgotten hero in the world of racing and car engineering. And we've all heard the names Ford. We've heard Shelby, Shelby Mustang. We've heard Ferrari a million times. But unless you're a car person, a car guy, a car girl, you don't really know much about the brands and what it took to build the companies, the production wars, the real-life people who developed the technologies, and it's great to get like a, a fictional face or a character face for Carl Shelby, for Henry Ford II, and even Enzo Ferrari. The pairing of Matt Damon and Christian Bale was such a big draw for me, and I'm sure most audiences, to see these two powerhouse actors share scenes together. And it's not like they're in the same movie and they're in like one or two scenes together. They're together the whole time, and just they're, they, they had so much natural chemistry and they were able to play off each other. It was so much fun. It was dramatic. And these two seemed like they were true old friends with a big history. Yeah, they're magnetic together on camera. The chemistry is phenomenal. It looks like they've known each other for years. And although the GT40 is what drives the film, it's the characters that drive the plot and the story. Yeah, let's talk about Shelby for a bit because I think he's a, fas- a fascinating character. And Matt Damon is so great because... Shelby is a natural racer, but he developed this 
very serious heart condition where if he gets his heart rate up too high, there's a good chance that he'll have a heart attack and die. And this is ironic because Shelby is at peace when he's at behind the wheel of a car going as fast as possible. When, when Shelby gets a car up to 7,000 RPMs, everything goes quiet. It seems like it's floating and it feels like you're weightless. And so Shelby, when he gets to this point of a car going that fast, he feels like he's at peace and everything gets, is, is drowned out. But it's ironic because he can never get to that peace again because if he goes that fast, his heart rate will go too high and he'll have a heart attack. Yeah, Carl Shelby's a very talented guy, very talented driver. He's ambitious, he's very confident, but he definitely wishes he could be doing something else besides making cars. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, pre- he's become a glorified salesman. He's a winner, and this, pl- this heart condition has plagued him to not be able to drive anymore. And his name can only carry him so far for so long in the industry he's, he's at with his motor company. But it ends up also being what opens the door for in the correct doors for him to work with Ford at Le Mans and to help build the GT40. And there's, there's this really interesting comparison where James Mangold was really keen on making this film because he directly connected with Carroll Shelby because just like Carroll Shelby has to work with the executives at Ford to please them and to make sure that they're on board with his plan, James Mangold, as a director of films, has to regularly convince executives at movie studios to get on board with his projects and to trust him with their money. So he, just, he felt like he really drew from Shelby as a character. Yeah, and so Shelby gets the job from Ford to help build the car for Le Mans and the racing team, and he enlists the help of a driver he's managing, Ken Miles, who he thinks is, without a doubt, the most talented driver alive. Yeah, he calls Ken Miles a pure racer, a natural driver, just like Carroll is, because it doesn't matter how fast or how powerful a car is, if someone like Ken Miles is behind it, they'll never lose. You're putting on like a Carroll Shelby drawl right now when you're oh, talking yeah. about it. And despite this Christian being, Bale's amazing <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, despite this being one of Christian Bale's like most normal looking characters, <laughs> he's still unrecognizable as Ken Miles. It's because he has his mannerisms and the physicality. He changes everything. He changes his face somehow. Yeah. And uh, Ken Miles, he seems like a good guy. He seems like a good father, but he has some serious character flaws. He's unbear- unbearably stubborn. He's immensely arrogant. And aside from that, Ken Miles is also an incredible driver and a genius car engineer. And the biggest conflict between him happens between him and the executives of Ford Motors because Ken has a problem with authority. He doesn't like playing by the rules. He's kind of like a wild card. He doesn't like being told what to do. And he doesn't co- like compromising himself. And the and the executives of Ford want all of those things. And so they call they they even say that Ken Miles isn't a Ford man, mm-hmm. so they don't want him to be the racer on this team. But Carroll Shelby knows that there's no way they can win Le Mans if they don't have Ken Miles behind the wheel. Yeah, the main problem holding back the team and holding back Shelby and Miles is the corporation aesthetic of Ford, and they're always concerned with branding and image and public awareness. And Ford and its marketing executive Leo ironically caused Shelby in the GT in the GT to fail. It's first attempt at Le Mans after Ford deems Ken, like you said, not a Ford man. Yeah. And basically just to set up the plot a little bit, at the time, Ford was manufacturing like more cars virtually than any other manufacturer at the time, thanks to Henry Ford's line of method building vehicles. However, like you said, they they were 
plummeting in sales. The Ford cars were very plain and boring. They had no new ideas until Iacocca comes up with the idea of buying the almost bankrupt Ferrari to create unprecedented partnership. And so Ferrari would retain control of the sports racing team and Ford would, would, and Ford would get control over production. However, when they get there, they find out that Ferrari used this potential deal to leverage an offer from Fiat, another Italian car manufacturer. And this act of disrespect of Enzo Ferrari on Henry Ford forces Ford to want to build a sports car and beat Ferrari at Le Mans, which Ferrari had dominated for years. And then this sets Shelby off on his mission to put together a team of racers and also somehow build a car that can beat Ferrari in a few months. And so one of my favorite scenes is when Carol Shelby goes and picks up Ken Malice from Ken Malice's house. And Ken Miles is still kind of like not on with the team and not on board with the plan. At this point in his life, Ken Miles is pretty much down on his luck. His his uh, mechanic shop has been shut down by the bank and um, he's been evicted from that property. And so he's got to this point where he's a, he's probably the best racer in America, but he's not making enough money, especially with the shop closed. So he's reached this point where he's decided not to be a racer anymore. Yeah, even though he wins that race... Even though he's very talented and he brings home that trophy and his son's obsessed with it, but and then the IRS, like you said, takes his shop. And so Carol Shelby has to convince him to come on board. And so what he does is he goes and picks him up at his house some random night and takes him to an airport and an airstrip with a 747. And then he unveils to Ken Miles this prototype GT Ford sports car. And it's a great scene because Ken Miles, you can tell he's like, oh my God, what is this? But also he's <laughs> trying to be as critical as possible yeah. about this piece of shit sports trying car. Trying to be skeptical. Yeah, so which which is a good engineer. That's what engineers do. And so it's so fun to, to watch him take it out for a couple of spins. He's like, he comes out of the car, he's talk, talking about what's wrong with it. Yeah. He's like, he like hates like, it. He's like, it's trying to take off like an airplane. <laughs> and then he just gets back into it for another spin. And you can tell he's in. Yeah, Shelby's like, what do you think? He's like, let me get back in. <laughs> and so next he has but to... But also he, uh, Shelby uh, ended up paying him $200 a day, which amounts to over $1,000 in the inflation for modern 2020 money. Yeah, so his wife becomes on board with it besides uh, besides the fact that she, she didn't want him to lie to him about it. Mm-hmm. And so she, she comes on board. And so Ken Miles and Carol Shelby are tasked with building a new sports race car, the GT40, to beat Ferrari at Le Mans. And so they eventually go through the the montage process of building the car and racing the car and testing the car and everything. And I love that scene where um, he he pulls the computer out of the car and then they just tape a bunch of strands of of yarn to the car to figure out what what's problem with the wind drag. Yeah, so they're trying to figure out where the air is being sucked in, and it's great because it's it's, an, it's a small metaphor and example of how Ford is trying to obviously take control of the operation because. Ford's a mega corporation, and what does every corporation want to do? They want to run every aspect of the be- of the business and be in charge of everything. And that's what leads to the downfall of the first Le Mans race is they don't want Ken Miles to drive, like you said, because he's not a Ford man. And so that forces them to pick another driver, and they end up losing at Le Mans. And what also happened was at the last minute, Ford swapped all the engines that Miles and Shelby built, and they put in their own engines um, for the race at Le Mans, and all of these engines ended up failing during the race. And so Ford loses at Le Mans. Henry Ford's very upset. But Carol Shelby explains to him that we're faster, we're dirtier, and something else. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so basically he convinces Ford that he needs Ken Miles. 
And Ken Miles doesn't want to come back to work for Shelby anymore, and they get in that hilarious scuffle with the groceries in the in the middle of the neighborhood. Such a funny scene because like they're fighting and they're mad at each other, but you can tell they're friends and they don't really want to hurt each other. And there's that moment where he uh, where where Miles throws Shelby to the ground, and and Shelby's looking at the the scattered groceries and. He picks up something really heavy, and then he's like, no, not that. And he grabs a loaf of bread instead because he doesn't want to hurt Miles, and he just starts bashing it into Miles' face. Yeah, so the Wonder Bread. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they had a lot of fun filming that scene. I love it. And again, Ken thinks he's going to get to drive, but and so Leo Bebe is is the head of marketing, basically, at four, and he he still doesn't want Ken Miles to race. And so there's that hilarious scene where Ford (laughs) and Lee, Ford and Leo come to check on the progress of the GT, and Cheryl and Shelby locks Leo in the in the, his office, and then he goes and quickly grabs Henry Ford, puts him inside the GT40, and takes him on that wild spin. And inside the car between the two of them, this is where Henry Ford Shelby makes a deal with Henry Ford, where he says he needs Ken Miles to race at Le Mans. If he wants to beat Ferrari, they need Ken Miles to race. And so he makes a deal with him. He says if Ken Miles wins Daytona, the next upcoming race then Ken Miles gets to race at Le Mans. Mm. But if Ken Miles loses Daytona, Ford Motor Company gets complete control over Shelby Motor Company. Great moment of raising the stakes for the characters. Big time stakes raising. And then we cut to basically Daytona, which Mm. is an awesome race. And this is where Ford, they don't need to win. They want Ken Miles to lose. Ken Miles has to come in first place, but technically Ford could still win. And also, Ford has enacted this strict policy that all of their racers, including Ken Miles, cannot bring their car to over 6,000 RPMs. Because they don't want to burn out the engine or yeah. ruin the cars because no one's really taken a car to that level yet. Yeah, exactly. And they don't think that the engine that Miles and Shelby built can can withstand 7,000 RPMs for an extended period of time. And so it's a great race. Again, we're getting, like, Mangold and his cinematographer feed on Papa Michael. I think that's his name. Amazing job with the cinematography of this, making you feel like you're on the track, making you feel like you're in the car, and the sound mixing is phenomenal. The race sequences are great. And so Ken Miles is not in first place for the, pretty much the entire race. Yeah, he's losing. And you're worried about Ken Miles, and you're worried about Shelby because he could lose his entire company. And so towards the very last lap or two, Shelby just takes a giant board, and he writes 7,000 RPM and, like, gun it like hell. Yeah. And he holds it up for Ken Miles to see, and then Ken Miles is just like, Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Christian Bale is so funny and charismatic in this movie. He finally had a chance to show his comedic chops. And as as Ken Miles, he has so much likability. He's kind of goofy and playful and wild. And it's one of my favorite recent Christian Bale roles. And so he jacks it up and he ends up winning Daytona, which means that he gets to race at Le Mans. Mm. And this is something that Ken Miles has been waiting for his entire life. He's a great racer, but he's never had really the opportunities to showcase his talents on an international stage like this. I mean, Daytona is a great race, but it's domestic. It's American. Hmm. But you got to go to International Le Mans, the biggest race on the planet. Yeah, and internationally, this is a beloved race, and it's an intense race because it's 24 hours straight, and each team has four racers. And so it's an ultimate test of endurance in 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 being able to control these high-powered machines f- for 24 hours straight. And again, Carol Shelby won, was part of a winning team for Le Mans in 1959, which is why, again, Ford enlists him to build the GT40. But what's really cool about Le Mans, which I never knew, is that the race starts on foot. So before the race starts, 
all the cars are lined up in in a row, and then on the opposite side of the track, all the racers are lined up on foot. And so when the gun's shot, the racers have to run across the track, get into their car, start their engines, and then drive off, which is so cool. They don't do that anymore, though, thank God. Okay. I think there are a lot of injuries and maybe even a death or two yeah, because they, seems they, dangerous. they stopped doing it, especially with how fast cars what are nowadays. What if you trip? You're fucked up, you're man. You're dead because <laughs> it shows like all these cars are bumping into each other and crashing, and there's and, some initial crashes. And also, what's the point of running? It's just part of the it's part of the tradition. Yeah. It was part of the tradition. Uh, I get it. You yeah. know how those like cultures are with like old old traditions. Yeah, you, get, yeah. you gotta do it to the, by the book. I don't know. <laughs> Sports are weird, but it's a fun thing that I, I never expected to see. And we have this great long sequence of Le Mans, and it's a twenty four hour race, which obviously they condense into like twenty twenty five minutes. And uh, the night before the race, it's a really cool moment where Carol Shelby's waiting at their. He's just at their booth of where their cars are. And he's just looking around the track, and then Ken Miles shows up, and Ken Miles wants to go for a walk because he has to because, you know, this is the biggest race of his life, so he wants to see the turns for himself. And now starts this awesome battle between Ferrari, the Italians, versus Ford and the Americans, and the GT versus the Ferraris. And it's an amazing race, and, you know, it's again, it's a 24-hour race, but Mangold does a great job keeping you in tune to the whole entire thing. Yeah, and you have this back and forth with, with Ken Miles, and the rival Italian driver. And it's fascinating because this race happens throughout night. It happens in rain or shine. And there are several moments of intense rain at night while driving in this race. And they film it where it's like just like the drivers you can barely see up ahead of you. Yet they're going over 100 miles per hour and taking these crazy turns. And so you can see the and there are multiple crashes in the first several minutes of this of this race where you can see the the life and death stakes of just being a part of this race and how how fine tuned of a racer you have to be in able to in order to succeed at at even surviving this race. And what we learned throughout the race is Ken Miles is the greatest driver on the planet, and also the Ford GT40 is far superior to the Ferrari mm. because throughout the race every Ferrari shits the bed. Yeah. It crashes or something happens to the car and they have to shut down and end their race. Yeah, Miles ends up just dominating the the field and he ends up lapping the other racers several times over. Even the Ford drivers. Yeah. The other Ford drivers. And so again, we're trapped again with Ford Corporation and wanting yep. the right image for the for the company. PR and first. Be a, be a Ford man. And so what happens is pretty tragic for Ken Miles because... Ken Miles won the Sebring and the Daytona, and there's a triple crown in racing where if you win those two and also Le Mans, it's very rarely done, and it's an amazing achievement. And Ford, all the Ford Ferraris, I mean, all the Ford GTs have survived the race, and they're all in the top four spots. And Ken Miles is even, he's doing so well that he's break, he's making record time in this race. He's breaking records with every lap. So it's the greatest racing performance ever at Le Mans, but Leo the marketing executive comes up with a brilliant idea that all four Ford vehicles or all three Ford vehicles cross the finish line at the same time. And so again, corporation trying to control everything and Shelby is put in a bind because he obviously wants to win Le Mans. He wants Ken to win and rightfully win the race, but he also is kind of in a bind because he's, he's that's his employer. He's in charge. He's emboldened to Ford. And then this shows the true transition of, Ken Miles' character because he's never been a Ford man. He's always been a wild card, and he's never respected authority. And then when he's when he's asked and when he's ordered by Ford and then asked by Shelby to do this, Shelby even tells him, "Just do whatever you want. I'm I'll stick by you." Ken Miles is on the track and he's 
so hard, so far ahead of everyone else. He's just by himself racing, and he just gives it a moment, and then he decides. His entire life, he's been so stubborn, and it's always worked against him. He's just for the for one moment in his life, he's gonna do the right thing and follow the rules and and take the orders and and do what his superiors ask of him, but it ends up working against him. With Lamont, you have to factor in your starting position, and they didn't realize this at the time while they were racing. So what happened was, even though they all finished the race together, and yeah, Ken Miles was a little bit ahead of them, so technically he crossed the finish line first. Because the the other Ford vehicle started out two positions behind him when the race began, the way Le Mans rules work is that when there's if there's a tie, whatever car covered the most ground when they tied at the finish line is the winner. And and it's so devastating because the other Ford ends up being cl- being claimed as the victor of the race, even though Ken Miles was miles ahead, was way ahead of him and had to slow down and wait for him to catch up. And the ironic thing is that this car was only two spots behind him when the race started, and it was only eight meters. And so he lost the triple crown. So he lost. Which kind of, for Ken Miles, meant that he's kind of this lost and forgotten hero in the car engineering world. Yes, for like hardcore racers, they know who he is, but we've never heard of him before. Yeah. And it's very unfortunate because he's so integral to the creation of the GT. He was so integral to pushing the boundaries of racing in sports cars. And it's just a really devastating experience for him to, I'm sure, to have lost Le Mans and lost out on the Triple Crown. Yeah, it was just his victory was just ripped out from under him because Ford wanted to have that great PR moment. And so Ford wins. They get their photo op, and everyone's happy. It's a happy ending. But what we also have just learned is that Ford, the, the hero and the villain in this movie are, are the same entity basically mm-hmm. you know ford and the gt team they're the hero and the villain you know they won but they also kind of lost at the same time and ford the motor company and shelby and miles they're shelby and miles are really kind of the protagonists and the heroes of the film and then ford's really not Ferrari. ford's really the villain of the film and the antagonist yeah they're they're ruthless in their pursuit of of just getting a great marketing moment and then the race is over and then Ken Miles and Shelby, since they're such good friends, they obviously want to get back to work right away, which they do, which leads to the tragic death of Ken Miles while testing the new car on one of their testing tracks. The the locks, the the brakes lock up, and he has a deadly crash. The car just flips over, and everyone watches from the distance as there's this cloud of dirt and smoke, and everyone just starts running to the car and Ken Miles passed away at that moment. Yeah, and they foreshadowed this in the early in the film with another crash he has at the testing facilities where it's a terrifying burning crash and explosion basically, but Ken Miles gets out and uh his son's very shooken up about it, but the the other technician tells him uh he's he's got the suit as long as he gets out he's going to be okay. Yeah. And Ken Miles just didn't get out in the other crash and it's just horrible tragedy and loss to the racing world. Yeah, it was a tragic moment, and then it's it becomes even more so because months later, Shelby goes to, to go and visit his family, and he parks down the street from his house, but he can't really bring himself to go to the house. And then he has this, and then he runs into Miles' son, and they have this little nice exchange. And um, you can see the pain on Shelby's face because Miles was a true friend to him, and he's gone. And then this leads to the brilliance of the bookends of this movie 
where the film opens and closes with a shot of Carol Shelby in his car and an emotional state. He turns on the engine, hears the purring of the engine, calms himself, and then speeds off. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's ironic how a movie like this is considered a risk nowadays because it's kind of like a classic throwback film. Yeah. Like, this is how movies used to be made and what they used to be like, the yeah. storylines. No superheroes in it. And it didn't make a ton of, move, of money. And, you know, no, it made money. It, it was a $100 million box office off a $90 million budget. So, I mean, uh, it didn't make a ton of money. Yeah. And so, it's unfortunate to see that people aren't really seeing movies like this anymore. And I feel like they, I wish they would because this was one of the best movies last year, one of my favorites, easily, top three. And I adored it seeing it in theaters, and it was it was an amazing experience to see. When this movie ended, I, was, I just started clapping. It was so much fun. I, I, it was so enjoyable, and it was a great story, so well made, well acted. And I, I went to this movie because I wanted to watch Matt Damon and Christian Bale, and I wanted to watch amazing racing scenes, and that's exactly what it delivered. Yeah, technical aspects of this film are fantastic. Um Sound mixing again is phenomenal. The score is really great, too, by Marco Beltrami. It's yeah. like one of my favorite racing kind of scores you've ever heard. He does all of Mangold's films. Yeah. Christian Bale actually lost 70 pounds to play Ken Miles because coming he had just come off of playing Dick Cheney in Vice where he gained like 110 pounds. So he had to drop all this weight, I think, in six months. What is this guy's heart is like going <laughs> to give out on him at some point. Like his liver is like, dude, what are you doing to me? <laughs> one one year you're eating ice cream every day, the other year you're eating kale and smoothies. Like, god damn it! He guy. said he didn't eat it at all for months. He just fasted. <laughs> He's a motivated man. He's a highly motivated individual. Amazing actor. So yeah, this is the end of our episode. Unless you have some fun facts, that's it, man. All right, that's the end of our racing car episode, episode twenty three of Raiders of Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're also now on Amazon Music, so you can find us there as well. And we also have a Patreon now, too, so you can support us monthly on one of the potential tiers. We have a $2, $5, and $10 tier to support us. Each one comes with specific perks, so check that out. Thanks a lot, guys. We love you. And thanks so much again for watching and tuning in, guys. Take care.